comes from uh, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7 today. So if we can all open our Bibles. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals of the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will, cert- you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. When the eyes of both of them were open, they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and coverings for themselves. Did God really say he is good? Then where did evil come from? In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, speaking about God's word and his precepts and his instructions, it says, I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well for It is your life. Understanding and believing God's word or rejecting God's word is literally a matter of life and death. Eternal life or eternal death. It's one of the reasons why I spent the last couple of weeks dealing with or talking about the reliability of Scripture. So we will always have a solid foundation so we know on which, what we can stand upon. That's um, one big question that is out there in the world today is, is God really good? If so, where did evil come from? What's the origin of evil? Some would pose the question, why did God create evil? Seems like a logical question, right? I mean, if God created everything, then he must have created evil. Why would he do that? Fortunately for us, God has given us us the story of the beginnings, the origins, which are found in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we find the origin of the physical universe as we know it. Genesis 3, we find the origin of evil. There's a very important verse at the end of chapter 1 that we have to hold on to as truth if we're going to understand where evil came from. Everything that God made, God created the world in a matter of six days, and then he rested, and everything he made, according to chapter 1, verse 31, was very good. The verse says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. 
He had created a perfect universe. But we find ourselves today living in anything but a perfect universe. What happened? What went wrong? When we come to chapter 3, a dramatic scene takes place. And this is the reason why the world is the way it is. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? Now the true diagnosis of the human condition stems from that event. God, the creator of the universe, is all good and only good. And his original creation was all good and only good. The goodness of his creation was a reflection of the goodness of God. Now, let me get a little philosophical here with you. God is not the author of evil. If God created evil, then God would have to be both good and evil. And if God were both good and evil, there would be no hope for the ultimate triumph of good, which the Bible promises. If God were the source of evil, he would, uh, th- then, then there could be no basis for salvation. Because God then could not save us from evil if evil was part of his nature. So the biblical revelation of the original goodness of creation, the way God originally created, protects the goodness of God. It all came from the goodness of God. Therefore, it makes a source of evil outside of God. The question then becomes, so where did evil come from? I think everybody would agree to one degree or another that there is evil in the world. Although in today's culture, even that is being questioned. If you go back to Albert Einstein, one of the greatest scientists and intellects the world has known, it's interesting that the toughest intellectual barrier to the Christian faith for him was not the question of God creating the world. He didn't really have an issue with that because the reasoning of cause and effect was not a hard concept for Einstein to grasp. He saw that the universe was an effect, and it then had to have a source for its cause. He saw that the universe was designed, so it had to have a designer. He saw that it was ordered, so it had to come out of an orderly mind. And so Einstein concluded there must be a mind behind the universe. And as he put it, and I quote, the universe reveals an intelligence of such superiority that it overshadows all human intelligence. So that was not an issue for Einstein. He was not stumped by God as a creator. What really threw him for a loop was something far tougher than the doctrine of creation. It was a doctrine or the problem of evil and suffering. He knew there had to be a designer, but he struggled a lot over the character of that designer. He struggled with the same question that so many people struggle with today. How could God be good and yet allow terrible things to happen in the world? Since Einstein couldn't resolve the problem of evil and suffering with a good God, he ended up turning completely away from the God of the Bible. 
And the unfortunate conclusion he came to, because he ultimately rejected the truth of Scripture, was that there was no personal God at all. He concluded that God exists as an impersonal cosmic mind, simply a rational force that gave the world its rational structure, and he could not, but he could not be a personal God with any personal nature. But folks, Einstein was wrong. God is a personal God, and he does care. And simply put, God is not responsible for evil, his creatures are. Everything that God created was very good. Genesis 1.31, everything. That's the foundation, that's a premise that we must start on as believers. It's not just Genesis 1, this is affirmed all the way through Scripture. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, uh, it tells us that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. 1 Corinthians 14, says that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Disorder is a result of sin. James 1, says God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 1 John 2, 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, in other words, all categories of evil, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Psalm 5, 4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. All through Scripture. Then on the flip side, in Isaiah 6, you've got the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Three times holy. That's the Hebrew way of describing perfect holiness. There could could be no evil in perfect holiness. And we see that in, uh, in the Son, Jesus Christ, as well. The perfect, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God. We talked about that for weeks as we came to the conclusion of Matthew. He who had no sin in him, he who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. All that to say is that God is not evil. God does not do evil. He cannot be tempted to do evil. He never tempts anybody else to do evil. God is not responsible for evil. The source of evil, the source of sin is outside of God. Now, when God created angels and when God created humans, He gave them intelligence, He gave them reason, and He gave them choice. We love choice, don't we? Intelligence gave them the ability to understand things. Reason gave them the ability to process that understanding towards making a decision towards behavior. And choice gave them the freedom to determine that behavior. Intelligence, reason, and choice. Bottom line, with what they knew and with the ability they had to process that information, they would be then brought to a choice. And whether angels or whether men, they would have the choice either to obey God or to disobey God. God did not create robots, you've heard that, or artificially programmed intelligent beings to do what he wanted them to do. Listen to this, because this is very important. To disobey God is to initiate evil. You see, evil is not the presence of something. Evil is the absence of righteousness. It's like a hole in the ground. We describe it as a hole, but you don't see anything. What it really is is the absence of dirt. 
You can't create evil because evil doesn't exist as a created entity. It does, doesn't exist as a, as a created reality. Evil is a negative. Evil is the absence of perfection. It's the absence of holiness. It's the absence of goodness. It's the absence of righteousness. Evil became a reality only when creatures chose to disobey. Evil came into existence initially when Satan and his angels rebelled and were thrown out of heaven. And next it occurred in the fall of Adam and Eve. See, God created absolute perfection. He is perfect in all his ways. We sang about that this morning. Wherever a lack of that exists, sin exists. And that cannot exist in the nature of God or anything that God makes. Evil comes into existence when God's creatures fall short of the standard of moral perfection. God created a world where there was no death, there was no uh, starving, there was no weeping, there was no sorrow. The Bible says that there will come a day, there will come a day when the Lord Jesus will create a new world where according to Revelation 21.4, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. All the sinfulness, all the old world will be past. That's going to be God's world. That's the epitome of God's world. What we have today is no longer God's world. What we have today is a world dominated by and ruled by, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In short, we have and live for the time being in a fallen world that is ruled by Satan. So why doesn't God just stop it? Why doesn't he just stop all the wars? Why doesn't he just stop all the pain? Why doesn't God just stop all the sorrow? The answer is God didn't start it. These are the consequences of man's choice and continue to be the consequences of man's choice. God did wipe out mankind at one time. You remember all way back in the time of Noah. But that sin nature was still there, and so that continued But the time will come, even though God didn't start it, when he will stop it. But for this time, in God's sovereignty, God has left man to his choice. Because it is man's choice. Because God will not be worshipped by people who are made to worship him. But rather, he wants those who choose to do so. That's where real worship comes. That's why he's provided the way. And that's why he's told us to go and and make disciples, to show them the way. So until God, in his sovereign purpose, restores the world, it will continue to play out in the full consequences of the sinfulness of mankind. And what's wonderful is that in the midst of all that, God is gracious. And God does some amazing things to make life wonderful and rich in the midst of the fallenness. And at times, He actually intervenes and overrules what could be total disaster. In fact, I believe that it's only the grace of God that preserves man from destroying everything. You know, we ask the question, if God is love, why is there sin and pain and suffering in the world? It's a wrong premise. You see, everybody wants to blame God. That's the easy thing to do, isn't it? Blame God. God's fault. No one wants to take 
responsibility. In fact, because mankind chose to rebel against God, according to Ephesians 2, verse 4, we are all by nature, and we'll talk about that in a moment, we are all by nature deserving. That's a big word, deserving of wrath. By nature. God is a God of justice. And He has every right to destroy His creatures who all rebelled against Him. In God's justice, we deserve wrath, every one of us. But God is also a God of mercy, and He's a God of grace, which people so often ignore and discount because they're so busy blaming Him. Remember, justice is getting what we deserve, God's wrath. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, God's wrath. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, forgiveness and eternal life. By His grace, we are saved. We don't deserve it. But when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, our gracious God gave it to us anyway. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So instead of blaming God for what's happening around us, we should be praising Him for His grace. Not if, but since God is love. In fact, God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Now, getting back to the topic of the origins of evil, we need to understand that the one who chose evil was the source of it. Now, in the case of Satan, he was initially the source of evil in the angelic realm, and he got a third of all the other angels to go along with him and join him in that rebellion. Scripture clarifies that for us. And if you look at Revelation, it tells us there are thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels. And, they're only, and, and John is only talking about the good angels. So in reality, there are twice as many good angels, holy angels, as there are demonic beings since one-third of them f- fell. Two-thirds didn't. And again, they fell by choice. They chose Now, the same happened with Adam and Eve, only it had a different effect. With angels, they all sinned their own sin, and nobody's sin passed on to anybody else because they don't procreate. In the case of Adam and Eve, however, when Adam and Eve made the wrong choice, again, their choice, we're going to be looking at that uh, next week, all humanity went with them because we all came from Adam and Eve. So again, the source of evil is outside of God. The source of evil is in the creature. Now, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to look at the first three words this morning. Now, the serpent. Now, the serpent. If we're going to understand really where evil came from, the depths of the insidiousness of the evil that, that doubt, uh, doubt brought to leading to sin, we need to understand the serpent to some extent. What is this serpent? 
Now just imagine you're, you're in the garden, okay? Everything is very good. It's beautiful. Everything is going well. All kinds of creatures are there that, that God made, and they're all good. Uh, de- God declared them good. There are animals of various sorts. There's, there's birds, and there's, and there's uh, cattle and other wild animals. There's fish in the sea, all, all sizes. Uh, there are creeping kind of animals, animals that walk along the ground. And I think of alligators and crocodiles and salamanders and other creepy things. God made them all. Well, here in chapter 3, we meet a serpent, Nakash in Hebrew. It's a general name for some kind of snake-like reptile. And we don't know exactly what it looked like at that moment. Most people assume that this animal was a slithering snake that came up to Eve and started talking to her. But it only became that when it was cursed in verse 14, later on when it was made to go on its belly and eat dust. So if that was the curse, we can assume that this, at this particular moment, when the serpent first appeared in the garden, he's probably not slithering around on his belly, eating dirt, as it were. Because again, that was part of the curse. So in some degree, the, snake, the snakish reptile probably had some kind of legs. Don't know how long, don't know how big, have no, no clue. But interestingly enough, the word nakash in Hebrew relates to the verb to hiss. Makes sense for a snake, right? But it's also associated with sounds that a lot of other reptiles other than snakes also make. So it's not really difficult to imagine some sort of snake-like reptiles with legs, such as a bearded dragon. I mean, just the head looks like a snake, doesn't it? A giant salamander, alligators, crocodiles, they all can make the hissing sound as well. There's another Old Testament word used to speak of snake-like reptiles, and that is tanin. Now that word may ring a bell in your mind. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago and saw that it can also be referring to a dragon or sea monster, uh, what we might call a dinosaur. Now, in Scripture, these two terms are both general terms that are often interchangeable, which is kind of interesting. For example, in Exodus chapter 7, where Moses is interacting with the magicians of of Pharaoh, and they've got their their staffs in their hands, and they throw down their staffs, and, and snakes come up, and then Moses throws down his staff, and a snake eats all the other snakes. That would have been fascinating to watch. The word used there for the snake is tanin. It's translated as snake. So nakash and tanin are used to refer to some kind of dragon or some kind of serpent. Why do I bring that up? Hang on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in a minute. Now, this is not just any other reptile, because this one talks. No, I, I don't believe God created talking animals in Genesis or in the garden there, but everything was brand new, perfect, magnificent in the garden. And remember, Adam and Eve were only a few days, a few weeks, a few months. I have no idea how old they were at that point. They had just been created, and God had just created all this this magnificent garden with all the creatures that were there. They were still discovering the wonders of it all, and, and there was nothing to fear. Why? Because it was all very good. And there's no indication that Eve was even shocked when this reptile walks up and starts a conversation with her. You know, if you'd come over to my home 
Sometime you might be surprised or even amazed, but not shocked probably to hear my African gray parrot sing the first line of I'm So Pretty from West Side Story. He's been listening to Nancy. But we find this serpent is compared to other animals there in verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, which indicates, first of all, that this creature was part of God's original creation back in Genesis 1, and that this animal belongs to the animal kingdom. But there's something different about this particular serpent because he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This particular animal knows about God. It has a personality. It speaks with intelligence. This particular animal has a devious, malevolent, evil mind. Now, this creature wasn't just like any other creature. Notice there in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other. It wasn't referring to serpents in general. It's not comparing serpents with cows and lions and other animals. Snakes are no more subtle and crafty than any other animal that stalks their prey. But this particular one, the servant, is a crafty, subtle, malevolent, evil, wicked individual animal because it is being used by a superhuman intelligence to lead Eve and Adam into a choice towards evil. A choice that this personality within that serpent already had made himself. And listen carefully. The personality inside that animal knew the effect of the choice Adam and Eve were going to make. Adam and Eve had no clue. All they knew was good. They had no idea what would happen when they made this choice. You see, when Satan first made that choice to rebel, he made it because he said, I want to be like God. And he found out immediately that he became as much unlike God as is possible. God is holy, Satan became evil. And he says to Eve, see, the reason God doesn't want you to eat it is because, because if you eat, you'll become what? Like God. Wow, who wouldn't want to be that way? He's just taking them through the same exact scenario that he himself went through, only he knows exactly what the effect is going to be, because it happened to him. You see, by acting upon the desire to be like God brings a consequence of becoming so much unlike God as is conceivable. And that's exactly what Eve found out. And because of the procreative aspect of mankind, all of mankind then were taken down as well. This serpent, taken over by the personality of Satan, hates God. This serpent who is angry about the circumstances in which he has found himself, this serpent, this dragon, this this, this serpent, Satan, wants to destroy this amazing new creation called man. He knew that God had said, don't eat of that tree. But he claimed not only to know what God said, but he claimed to know more than Eve. In verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not certainly die. You know, snakes in and of themselves, the actual reptilian creatures, they don't have moral thoughts. Reptiles don't have moral thoughts. They can't make moral judgments. But this creature taken over by Satan, who is evil in purpose, 
evil opposed to God, evil opposed to man, and he offers to Eve the promise of unequal blessing. I mean, what could be better than being like God? But he knows that when you seek to be like God, the end result is shame, degradation, misery, and ultimate damnation. He knows already because that's what he has experienced. Now, who is this creature? I've referred to it as a serpent taken over by Satan. Why, why would I say that? Because interestingly enough, if you go through Genesis there, chapter 3, Genesis doesn't say anything about Satan. It's talking about that, that old serpent. But if we go all the way through to the end of the Bible, and that's one reason why we have to take the whole counsel of God when we're, when we're looking at what God is saying and, and the meanings. We can't just take a verse here and a verse there and develop our theology from that. So we go to the end of the Bible to find out who he is. In the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, we again find these two terms kind of borrowed from the Hebrew, nakash and tanin, both of which refer to some kind of reptilian serpent or dragon, or perhaps both. Verse 9, Revelation 12, verse 9, the great dragon, drakon in Greek, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent, ophis, the Greek word for, sna- uh, for snake, called the devil or Satan. So it's referring to both dragon and snake, referring to it as Satan. So who is that serpent or dragon? Who is that original ancient one who deceives the whole world? It's none other than Satan. Scripture is very clear on that. It identifies him. Then again in Revelation 20, verse 1 and 2, talking about what's going to happen at the end of the millennial period, after Christ's second coming and judgment described in chapter 19, it says here, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, um, having the key to the abyss, and holding his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon... That ancient serpent, two different words, who is the devil or Satan. So there is no doubt who Genesis chapter 3 is referring to. The story in Genesis is not just a story, a fable, a legend, or some parable. There are churches out there. There are seminaries out there that are pushing that concept. It is History. In fact, the Apostle Paul refers to this particular incident twice in his own writings. One of them is 2 Corinthians 11.3, cautioning the believers who say, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, so Paul is referring to an actual event that took place back in history. So the New Testament clearly identifies who that serpent was and confirms as well the whole temptation story that we have. So there in Genesis, there's a real personality there in that serpent who is opposed to God, calling God's word into question, calling God's character into question, impugning God, a malevolent, wicked, evil, vicious personality opposed to God and opposed to man because he wants to plunge humanity into the same misery that he finds himself in. It's not, we don't see him going to Eve and says, hey, Eve, whatever you do, don't disobey God. Whatever you do, don't try to be like God. I did it, and I'm suffering the consequences. You shouldn't do that. No, there's nothing like that in Satan. He seeks only evil. And mankind today still wants to be their own God. 
Where's that coming from? It's coming from that ancient serpent, Satan himself, still telling the same old lies. You can be like God. Still trying to pull us away from God. Still telling us that we can be like that. You would think that mankind would learn, wouldn't you? But no, we don't learn because I want to do it my way. Jesus, referring to Satan in John 10.10, says that he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Satan does. Where do you think all the stealing, killing, and destroying in, in our own nation and around the world is coming from? It's being pushed by that ancient enemy. But as powerful as he seems to be, as powerful as Satan sometimes seems to be, as wicked as he is, as evil as he is, listen, he is subject to God's sovereign control. In his temptation of Eve, he could not make her sin. He doesn't have that power. The devil still can make, excuse me, the devil still cannot make us sin. We can't say the devil made me do it. That's just passing the buck. We need to know that we cannot make, he cannot make us sin. When we sin, we bear the responsibility before God, and God will hold us to account. It's no one else's fault. Can't blame Satan. We certainly can't blame God. We can't even blame others. We love doing that, right? The fault and responsibility rests upon us. He can tempt. Satan is a great tempter. But he does not have the power to make us sin. His power has its limits. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent. He's not, excuse me, omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipresent everything, uh, everywhere at the same time. He's not immutable. He's not unchangeable. He certainly isn't sovereign. He is not like God at all. He is utterly as much unlike God as a creature could be. In fact, the name Satan is a word that means adversary or opponent. He is the adversary of God. He is the adversary of man. Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2 says this about Satan and mankind. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who is that spirit? That's the spirit of Satan. How did he become the ruler of the world? Well, it happened in Genesis 3. It happened in Genesis 3 when mankind rebelled against God. So let's come back around to God. Always a good place to come back to. People have rejected God. They don't want anything to do with him. They don't want him or his word to have any influence in their lives. They've thrown God and prayer and the Bible out of our schools and out of our government. A total rejection and rebellion against him. And then when something happens, yes, such as a horrible shooting that we've experienced down in Texas, they have a tendency to cry out, where is God? See, God's not love. He can't be love. But you see, mankind turned light into darkness, turned good to evil. And the bad stuff that happens is a consequence of man's rebellion. 
And we, young and old, yes, believers and unbelievers, are all living in this fallen, fallen world with the consequences of rebellion and sin. And because of that, man doesn't deserve God's mercy. Man doesn't deserve God's grace. We have no right to demand God's mercy or God's grace. We come back to where we started this morning. For God so loved the world. Because God loved his creation so much, in spite of this rebellion, he gave his one and only son. Have you ever thought about that? If there was a group of people who hated you, despised you, who rejected you and sought to remove all traces of you, if there was a way to change their lives, but it involved the death of your child, would you give your only child to them and allow them to kill him? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Folks, that's the epitome of unconditional love. As long as we are in this world, there is going to be trouble and sickness and death. Those are the consequences of sin. But God has provided a way to have eternal life with him in heaven forever. There, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, there is a way. There is a, a truth. There is a life. And it's all in Jesus. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, because of his great love for us. God is love. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. We shouldn't have deserved it. We don't deserve it. It is by grace you have been saved. And he goes on and says, for it's by grace only by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, is what? It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Folks, that grace, that mercy, and love can only come from a good God. Father, this morning, thank you that you are a good, good Father. We don't deserve any of this goodness. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your mercy. But Father, you created us and you still love us. And what man has done and, and the effects of sin breaks your heart. It grieves you. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin. But you have provided a, a way out for us. We have, you have provided us a way that we can live in victory where we don't have to continue living in sin. Father, I pray that you impress upon us to such a degree your love for us and what you accomplished is since you loved us. You have asked us to share that love of Jesus with those that are around us, those who are suffering, those who have no hope, those who don't see any way for tomorrow. Father, there is hope, and hope comes in Jesus. We thank you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.